If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Well, amnesia is a fairly popular theme in movies. People wake up and they don't remember who they are or they don't remember what's happened to them. I think While You Were Sleeping, the 90s romantic comedy, had something to do with that, although one that I like more is The Born Identity. If you like the Born Identity movies, then uh, you're on the right track. I love those movies. And if you're going to get amnesia, that's probably the best kind of amnesia to get, where you wake up and you can basically take anybody out in about two and a half seconds. You know, Jason Bourne wakes up and he doesn't remember who he is. He doesn't know anything about himself, but he finds himself sleeping on a park bench in a European city. And these two police officers try to, you know, prod him and arrest him. And in about three seconds, he takes both of them out. And the whole movie is him trying to remember who he is because he's got a case of amnesia. That's a fun theme in some of our favorite stories and some of our favorite pieces of literature and favorite films. And it's also, I think, a theme in our lives as followers of Jesus. We have a tendency towards spiritual amnesia. Spiritual amnesia. We forget who we really are. Spiritual amnesia is a big problem. In fact, I think it's one of the main problems that you face if you're here today and you are a Christian. It's what the Colossians, in many ways, were facing. They had forgotten who they really were in Jesus. What is your identity? What is your identity if you're a Christian? Well, the most common way that the Apostle Paul explains what it means to be a Christian is to say that a Christian is one who is in Christ. A Christian is one who is in Christ. Paul uses that phrase or a close corollary 167 times in his letters. And theologically, we refer to that idea as union with Christ. And the important thing to get is this. Remembering your identity is the beginning of actual change. Remembering your identity is the beginning of actual change. Believing who you are in Christ is what empowers you to actually become more like Jesus in practice. And you know what? That's important. We don't, we, we want to change, don't we? I mean, that's what this whole Christian thing is about at the end of the day. Living lives of holiness and purity and joy and love to the glory of God and for the good of other people. That's one of the big goals of being a Christian. And that's what Paul writes about in Colossians chapter 3, these first few verses. He's already hinted at this idea of union with Christ back in chapter 2. He told us that we've died and we've been made alive together with Christ. And he says that's the real key. The Colossians were looking for all sorts of spiritual secret sauces, all sorts of secret ideas for how to get close to God. And Paul is here to tell them and he's here to tell us that the way to get close to God is to know and believe that in Jesus you are already as closely connected to him as possible. Believing who you are in Christ is the key to actual spiritual change. That's what Paul talks about in chapter 3. 
he gives us the idea in these verses we read this morning. And then next week, in the rest of chapter 3, we're going to see how Paul works this idea of union with Christ out practically in our lives. He's really asking, how does being a Christian make a difference in your life? How does Jesus change you? How do we grow? How do we become more holy? That's the topic for the next few weeks. And today, Paul gives us the basis for that. We grow by remembering our identity. By remembering our identity as people united to Jesus. That's the power for change. So let me summarize like this. Here's the big idea. Because Christians are united to Jesus, they can become more like Jesus. Because Christians are united to Jesus, they can become more like Jesus. Let's split that sentence into two parts. That'll be our outline. First, we are united to Jesus. That's what Paul tells us. That's what he's teaching in these verses. Really, he writes about two different aspects or two facets of our union with Christ or how we are connected to Jesus through faith. First, he says, we're united to Jesus in his death. Look at verse three. For you have died. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, notice the grammar of that verse, because it's really important. The phrase, you have died, is a past tense verb. What Paul means here is that when Jesus Christ died on the cross 2,000 years ago or so, there is a sense in which we died along with him. The way he puts it in Romans chapter 6 is clearer. He says there that we have died to sin. Sin no longer has mastery over anyone who's united to Jesus Christ. The guilt of sin no longer condemns us, and the pollution of sin no longer stains us. The death of Jesus Christ in the past on a cross makes certain the present reality of the death of sin in the Christian. So the death of Jesus has real experiential power for us Now, we're united to Jesus in his death. Secondly, we're united to Jesus in his resurrection. Look at verse 1. If, or a better translation, since, since then, you have been raised with Christ. Now notice that's also past tense, which is an even more amazing consideration. Get what Paul's saying. He's saying that we have already experienced resurrection. When you are converted to Jesus Christ, when you place your faith in Jesus, your old identity, your old self dies and you experience a resurrection into an entirely new you. He writes in verse three that our lives are now in the present, hidden with Christ in God. We're so wrapped up in Jesus Christ. We're so wrapped up in his death and resurrection, so closely connected to Jesus, that what is true of Jesus, Paul says here, is also true of us. And this isn't the only place he says this. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes there, God raised us up, past tense. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
Romans 6, 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Friends, listen, that is the central reality. The central reality of your identity if you are a follower of Jesus. The main way that Paul describes what it means to be a Christian The main way is to say that you have died and you have been raised in Christ. Anyone who has trusted in Jesus is so deeply connected to Jesus that the Bible says that what has happened to him has also happened to you. Uh, In the Lord of the Rings, the, uh, the theme of that whole story is premised on the idea that the dark Lord Sauron has made this one ring. The one ring to rule them all, one ring to bind them all, all the other rings. So the actual Lord of the Rings, by the way, is Sauron. And uh, Gandalf, at one point in the story, story is explaining to Frodo how Sauron invested some of his power, some of his life force in the ring. So that as long as the ring exists, Sauron exists. And unless the ring is destroyed, Sauron will not be destroyed. Now, that's similar to the way that a believer is connected to Jesus. Yes, I am comparing to Jesus to Sauron. I think it's a good illustration. It makes the point, although obviously Jesus is a lot different than Sauron. It's very clear that we're connected to Jesus in a similar way to which the ring is connected to Sauron. Our our life force is bound up with the life force of Jesus. You right now, if you're a Christian, are dead and raised in Jesus. Okay, let me tell you something. If that's true, if that's true, if what Paul says here is true, that I've been raised with Christ and have died to the guilt and power of sin, why don't I feel more like that right now? You ever thought about that? Or is it just me? Why don't I feel resurrected in Christ? You know, if you were to look at my, or if you were to ask me, if you were to ask me in the past week of my life to define how things are going for me spiritually, my first answer would probably not be, well, obviously I'm raised with Christ and dead to the power of sin. It's probably not going to be my top five answers, I'm sorry to say. You know, to put it a little bit differently, if this is true, why don't we experience the resurrection of Jesus more fully and more vitally in our lives now? You know, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. And that's where you must understand how Paul distinguishes. Paul distinguishes between what is true of us in principle and what is true of us in practice. And the clearest place he explains that is in another letter, 2 Corinthians 4. Let me read to you from 2 Corinthians 4. Here's what Paul says. But we have this treasure of the gospel in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Though our outer man is wasting away, our inner man is being renewed day by day. What does that mean? Here's what Paul's saying. Our inner people, our true selves, are right now dead to sin and raised to life. But that is not yet fully evident in our outer man. Theologians call this the already, not yet, distinction of the Christian life. We are already in principle dead to sin and raised to Christ. 
but the consequences and effects of that gospel reality are not yet fully present. That's why back in Colossians 3, verse 4, Paul says, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear, future tense there, with him in glory. So there is a future when Jesus comes back and makes everything new again, in which these things that are true of us inside, in principle, will be fully manifest and clear on the outside as well. But that day's not here yet, which is why you can't always look at your life and say, boy, I sure feel raised up with Christ today. I sure feel dead to sin today. You are dead to sin today. You are raised to Christ if you're a follower of Jesus, if you believe the gospel, but that's not yet fully evidence. But, but we do right now have the power to fight sin through our new identity in Jesus. So you are connected to Jesus. You're united to Jesus. Practically, okay, practically speaking, what can that teaching mean for you? Why does Paul devote so much time in his letters to churches on this idea? What does it mean for you if you can grasp that? Among other things, this means that you can be absolutely confident You can be absolutely certain of God's undying and eternal love for you. What defines your existence right now, right here, is the existence of Jesus. What defines your existence is not your failures. It's not your guilt. It's not your shame. It's not your struggles. What defines your existence is Jesus' obedience and righteousness. Right now, what defines your existence is not your disobedience, it's Jesus' obedience. What defines you is not your failures, it's Jesus' success. What defines your existence is not your loneliness, it's Jesus' welcome. What defines your existence is not your condemnation, it's Jesus' justification. God does not see you as guilty any longer. You have died with Christ. God doesn't see you as condemned any longer. You have died with Christ. God doesn't see you as an enemy and stranger any longer. You've been raised with Christ. You don't need to fear or doubt whether or not God is for you. God looks at you and he sees Jesus. You don't need to wonder If your ineptitude and your spiritual shortcomings are going to cast you out of God's sight. Because God looks at you and he sees Jesus. Jesus clothes you. Jesus wraps himself up in you. The new you is so connected to who Jesus is that God will no more stop loving you than God will stop loving Jesus. And God will never, ever stop loving Jesus. And because you're united to Jesus, God will never, ever stop loving you. You're in Christ. And whoever is in Christ, boom, new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. The person that you once were. The person that you once were, a slave to sin, alone, empty on the inside, guilty, ashamed, alienated, and fearful. That person is dead. He or she no longer exists. God crucified that person in the cross of Jesus Christ 
to use the language of Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's what salvation means. You are united to Jesus. Now, Paul can take the rest of Colossians 3 to play that out practically. And here's the key. Here's the key. Because we're already united to Jesus in principle, we can become more like Jesus in practice. The Christian life, really, the Christian life is about more and more matching what is happening in our outer life to what's already true in our inner life. You know, when I was, uh, you know, 17, 18, 19 years old, getting ready to move out onto my, into my own, into my own life and assume the responsibility of a young adult, but I was still living in my parents' house and I would do something foolish or stupid. One thing my dad would often say to me is, Luke, act your age. Act your age. He rarely said that, trust me. But when I did get in trouble, he would say, Luke, act your age. What he's saying is, it's time for you to live out of your identity. It's time for you to to be what you already are. And that's exactly what Paul says here. The commands that Paul gives flow out of the already present reality of who we are in Jesus. When you remember who you are, when you get rid of spiritual amnesia, when you enter by faith into the promises of God, then you are empowered Empowered to real, God-honoring, people-serving obedience. Look at how Paul says it. He gives two big-picture commands, okay? First, he says, seek the things that are above, verse 1. Seek the things that are above. So what does that mean? What does it mean to seek the things that are above? Well, he finishes the sentence with, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So that word seek is a reference to our wills or our hearts, which results in our actions. It's a uh, a reference to our hearts. It's, It's talking about seeking, is talking about what we most love, what we most serve, And what Paul is saying, what the Spirit is saying to you, is that because of who we are in Christ, we should therefore, in light of that reality, frame everything in our lives around the pursuit of serving Jesus Christ. We should frame everything in our lives around the pursuit of worshiping Jesus Christ. A a lot of our families uh, are young families with newborn children. And uh, we're very thankful for that at our church. And one thing I'm continually amazed by is the commitment level required of moms with newborns. And you moms, amen, right? Can I get an amen? Uh, it, it, it's, it's just crazy. You have to dedicate your entire life to the newborn. Their schedules, their sleep or lack thereof, their work, their other priorities, everything revolves around the baby for these moms. And that's the way the Christian is to live. That's the way the Christian is to live with regard to Jesus. Jesus is the Son, and everything in our life is to orbit Him. So let me ask you, can your life more and more be characterized? Can your life be characterized as one that is seeking the things that are above? What does that look like for you? 
Let me just suggest to you that it means, seeking the things that are above means working and loving and playing and living, not for your own sake, but for the sake of God and neighbor. In Christ, you are secure. Your identity is wrapped up in Jesus. The grace of God sets you free to set your mind on above things, loving God and others through all that you do, instead of doing these things for yourself first. So no matter your calling in life, no matter your vocation, no matter what makes up your daily life, you were asked to do this by God. Uh, John Coltrane, the famous jazz musician, uh, before he wrote perhaps his greatest album, A Love Supreme, um, in the liner notes of that album has this quote. Listen to what John Coltrane writes. During the year 1957, I experienced by the grace of God a spiritual awakening, which was to lead me to a richer, fuller, more productive life. At that time in gratitude, I humbly asked to be given the means and privilege to make others happy through music, to inspire them to realize more and more of their capacity for living meaningful lives, because there certainly is meaning to life. I feel this has been granted through his grace. All praise to God. That's a great illustration of what it means to seek the things that are above. The gospel liberated Coltrane from self-love, and it allowed him to do what he was really, really good at, in this case, making music, for God's glory and for the good of others. That's what it means to seek the things that are above, to devote your life in whatever ways God has led you, Not inwardly, but outwardly and upwardly. Seek the things that are above. Second, Paul writes that because we are united to Jesus, we live out of that identity when we, verse 2, set our mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So that first command, seek, was a reference to the heart or to the will. And this command, obviously, concerns the mind. So what does that mean? Set your mind on things that are above. Well, Jesus himself, remember when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? What did Jesus say? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, Matthew 22. So to love God with your mind To set your mind on above things is to think rightly about God and not just that, very importantly, to treasure him. To treasure him above all things. And it strikes me that seeking God and setting our minds on God are mutually beneficial realities. They mutually reinforce one another. In order for our affections to be stirred up for God, in order to love God more fully and frame our lives around him, we must understand the beautiful and the glorious reality of who he is in an ever-increasing way. And the vice versa is also true. In order to understand God and treasure him, we must have our hearts and our affections and our longings stirred up to make much of him. The great Puritan Thomas Goodwin is talking about this in this quote. Listen to what he says. Thoughts and affections are the mutual cause of each other. 
Thoughts are the bellows that kindle and inflame affections. And then if they are inflamed, they cause thoughts to boil. Therefore, men newly converted to God, having new and strong affections, can with more pleasure think of God than any other. So we cannot love God without knowing God, and we cannot know God without also loving God. Just as a brief aside, practically, uh, that's why the role of the scripture and prayer is so vital, so vital in our actual pursuit of knowing and loving God. The Bible and prayer are like the combination punch of the Christian life. You, You can't have really one without the other, and they're meant to go together. Scripture informs our minds, and prayer inflames our affections, and they work together in conjunction. So very practically for you, friends, let me encourage you this morning to devote time in your daily life to pursue both of these things together. Not just reading the scripture, but adding meditation and prayer to inflame your affections. And not just prayer, but adding scripture to build up your mind. It's through these means that we seek the above things and set our minds on above things. So set a time each day to do this and make it one of the most important things in your life. I remember hearing uh, Pastor Tim Keller say one time uh, in a sermon that I was listening to him preach that uh, imagine that a doctor, because of an incurable illness that you had, gave you a box of pills. And he said, you must take this pill one time every day. And if you refuse or fail to take it, you will die. Do you think that would serve as an incentive to faithfully take the pills and set up a schedule perhaps and maybe put it on your calendar, maybe even set up like a Google alert on your phone. You can do those things now. Did you know that? I bet you wouldn't forget to take the pill if your life depended on it. And what he says, he's speaking in reference to his marriage, is that if my wife and I don't pray together every day, we're, we're failing to take the spiritual pill that God makes available for us and our relationship is going to atrophy at best and die at worst. The way to know God, the way to set your mind on the things that are above and to seek the things that are above is to pursue him through the scripture and through prayer. Are you doing that? If not, the scripture asks us to begin to consider that seriously. So to summarize, okay, to summarize, the grammar of the gospel, the grammar of the gospel, the grammar of the Christian life is that we live and obey and serve and seek God out of the reality of who we already are in Christ. Paul doesn't say, seek the things that are above so that you can die to sin. He says, you have died to sin, so seek the things that are above. We have been crucified with Christ. We have been raised with Christ. We have a new identity. And it is through the power of that identity received by faith that we then pursue God with heart, will, and mind. Remember uh, Hans Christian Andersen's famous uh, children's story, The Ugly Duckling? Remember that? Very short story. You can Google it and read it in about five minutes. It's about this duckling that's born that thinks he's very ugly and homely, and he's abused and tormented by different animals that he lives with on the farm and then in this old woman's house. And as he pursues uh, life under this sort of bad feeling about himself and lack of self-esteem and persecution. He makes his way to uh, 
a lake and he sees swans off in the distance on the lake and he looks down and realizes that he has transformed from a duckling into a beautiful swan. And he goes and connects with the swans, with his new family. He realized who he already was, that he was beautiful. And that changed not just the way he thought about himself, but the way he related to others. That's what it means to be a Christian. Salvation means your identity is wrapped up in the identity of Jesus. It means that your identity is found in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, not in who you are and what you have done. And the key to transformation is to believe that again and again and again. Let's pray.